as uh, we're all uh, <coughs> accustomed to now, uh, by this time. Um, it's a, a period uh, of time for Dhamma dialogue and uh, to bring up any doubts or questions or reflections that uh, have come to mind or uh, any aspects of the practice that need clarifying. So please uh, don't be shy. Feel yes, Richard. Yesterday in the preparation for death meditation, you hmm. mentioned at one point that we'd done this many times before. And then later in your talk yesterday evening, you mentioned the view that the suttas and the Buddha's uh, references to rebirth were sparse. Um, the, the references in the suttas to the rebirth were sparse, and that perhaps um, the teachings were only referring to one lifetime. And um, I just wondered if you have any comments on that. Yeah, um, well, maybe I should uh, clarify that. Um, the, uh, what I was saying last night was particularly about uh, dependent origination. And that pattern of uh, some, it, it varies uh, in the different recensions of it in different parts of the canon, but sometimes nine, sometimes ten, uh, more are often twelve links in the chain, sometimes you know, fourteen or eighteen. <laughs> but uh, that, um, it was really in, in reference to that, um, that uh, the, uh, that particular pattern of the, um, uh, the, the connection between uh, the mind being uh, uh, ignorant, sort of uh, clouded by ignorance, not seeing clearly, and that leading to, um, uh, say, the attachment to craving, and then leading to to suffering in, in the long run. So that uh, if you look at the canon, uh, and uh, 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 one of the um, uh, most eminent scholar monks in Thailand has done the calculations on this, or totted it all up. So if you look at the Pali Canon, about two-thirds of the references to dependent origination refer to a single life, and then uh, about one-third across several lifetimes. When you look at the commentaries, that's reversed. So the references to dependent origination on, in one lifetime is about a third of the times. And then um, the references across several lifetimes, <coughs> and particularly the three-lifetime sort of model, quote-unquote, that you find in the uh, Visuddhimagga, that's uh, about two-thirds of the, of the time. So that uh, there's a shift in predominance. But um, in, the, uh, in the canon itself, the references to past lives, future lives, different realms, different realms of existence are quite abundant. Um, and so that if you take a... And I, I've done the, the sums on this myself. <laughs> So going through a collection like the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, um, and so there's about there's 152 discourses in that collection, and in uh, at least a third of those, there is some reference to past lives, future lives, different realms of existence. 
So it, it's not as though um, that is like a, a, a small presence in the, in the Buddha's teaching. It's a very common, totally matter-of-fact um, reference. So uh, I'm sorry if I uh, say, um, was unclear in speaking about that. And then uh, the, uh, my, my comments, uh, say, leading the meditation, saying yeah, we, we've all done this so many times before, that um, that's, uh, I would say that's you know, my subjective impression. <laughs> there might be some people here who are ardent. No, <laughs> we come from no, there is no li- we come from nowhere and there's no life after this one. I believe in Stephen Batchelor and Richard Dawkins <laughs> and that uh, a kind of um, materialist, skeptical materialist Buddhists. <laughs> um, so I, I acknowledge that's my uh, a subjective opinion or point of view, but it is thoroughly backed up by the Buddha's teaching and also by um, many great beings who have, uh, yeah, in the past and in, in current times who similarly see things in, in, in that way. People here, are you hearing all right? Them are the speakers on? Okay. <clears throat> no. Johnny, <laughs> <laughs> you said about uh, the four elements of the body today and the fire, water, air, and earth. How about uh, the fifth element, like space? Uh, again, the the the, uh, the teachings aren't a hundred percent consistent, and so most often in the canon, the Buddha speaks about the four great elements, the Mahadhatu. So, uh, earth representing solidity, the sort of crystalline quality of matter; uh, uh, air representing vibration. Um, water representing cohesion, and then fire representing temperature, or, and also the life force. So that when we talk about the four elements, uh, it's, it's in a way the four properties of matter is a, in a way a, a more accurate way of speaking <coughs> about it. So in a few instances he talks about the six elements. Um, and uh, so in the, um, I believe in the Majima Sutta number 140 called the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, the exposition on the elements, he talks also about the, the, uh, the fifth element of space, the Akasa Datu, and then the sixth one is consciousness, Vijnana Datu. And so uh, th- those are there in the mixture, but 95% of the time he would just speak about the, the four elements as the basic properties of the material world. When he's trying to analyze what Rupa is, form of the body or ma- the material realm, he uses those four attributes. Thank you. I'm sorry, just a similar question. How would you apply the elements in the breath? Sorry, in the, yes, in breathing, how would you apply the four elements? Rather than doing it in the body, mm-hmm. but just when, when you breathe, mm-hmm. how would you apply that? Um. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> you can do some work. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs>
Well, like I, I was saying the, this morning when I was encouraging um, uh, investigation and, and actual rehearsal rather than just preparation. Preparation can be many things, kind of like wills and what you want and who you want to get what and on and on and on and on. But rehearsal is that actual um, going through it. Like in a play, they rehearse over and over. They actually do what they're going to do in uh, in the actual performance. <clears throat> so, what I find really lovely, and I was commenting to uh, Ajahn and then talking with a gentleman on the retreat just this last walking session, the beautiful thing I find about the elements is the impersonality of them, one, and uh, that they're, they're, they're very accessible in that we can relate to those four. And perhaps that's why the Buddha, in his, his wisdom, I don't know, just talked about the four, because there's ones that are accessible. So, for example, and <clears throat> this is something I've been meaning to, and I would like to have a further discussion, and I will certainly share that if I do. I have an opportunity with Ajahn Amaro. But in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the, on uh, the foundations of mindfulness, and when the Buddha goes through uh, the mindful in-breath, the mindful long breath, long breath, short breath, short breath, and that whole uh, uh, exposition of how one develops this. But it's very interesting that in the, the elements, it said whether it's the element of air, thus he contemplates, I don't know the exact wording, and don't you dare come in and quote it perfectly. I <laughs> but basically, that my words, my kind of... Um, uh, what is the uh, uh, the paraphrase? Thank you. You're welcome. The paraphrase is that that as as it contemplates the breath in the breath, and to the extent necessary for insight and wisdom, just seeing the breath as the breath, and the elements the same, contemplating the internal air or uh, cohesion, uh, the uh, vibration element. Is that correct? Thank you. I still do need you, I guess. <laughs> Internally, externally, to the extent necessary for wisdom, insight to arise. So it's just like until one knows this. So with the breath, what's so wonderful, I like to think like a wonderful analogy for me, that it's like just stop for a moment and think as you and I breathe right now, that we are breathing together. So, and it's the same breath. I mean, we're right here in a close proximity, so we're all sharing the same air. And so, you know, is there, is there like, is it Ajahn's air compared to Joseph's air? You know, do I have some kind of ownership over the air? We share it equally. I mean, I might take a little bigger breath because I'm a little bigger, and he'd take a little smaller breath because he's a little smaller. But we're not going to argue over the air element, I don't think. You know, it's not going to be a, a problem. So we're sharing that, and, it's, and, and we can see that it's impersonal, isn't it? We, don't kind of, we wouldn't argue about that. And then the same if we think of the solidity in the, in the earth. Start to contemplate the solid element, which we have as a form of the skeleton, internally, seeing it, and as earth, just as earth element. Externally, we have all these, you know, hardness. I would say yes, because I, I certainly, w with, when I sit with this body, I feel its heaviness, its weight. 
So yes, yes. Um, and it's the most, it's probably the most accessible. It's the most, uh, maybe, um, it, it, it's, it's accessible, it's tactile, we can, we can feel it. We always, we carry it around so we feel that heaviness. The air maybe is fairly easy. Water, when we consume liquids, or maybe we have, you know, we have to spit or something, or we are cut and bleeding, is maybe a little harder to access. But we can realize that that flowing water is just like how much blood put in, you know, a stream or a pot of water where eventually we don't see red anymore, so it just kind of blends with the water element. And then the heat, the, the contemplation I like on the, the heat or cohesion, is, more technically speaking, <clears throat> is think about how often, like right now, we came in and the fans were going. I almost had a Vietnam flashback, you know, there was helicopters going on in here. I was ready to get behind the controls. <clears throat> but that um, the, 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 the element of, of, uh, of, 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 of water and then of, of the heat element is that how that was the analogy of the fans and opening the windows, how often are you and I just right? In other words, just right, not, not being too hot or too cold. And, or just sitting, how often are we just, we all have to move eventually. You know, this is, this is like, this has no pain. You can see this image is kind of, and, and maybe that's the, you know, the Buddha is the kind of the perfect example of that mind state. But, you know, this, we can agree that Probably there's no feeling, and this is just an image of something that somebody's created of this person who we revere, or some of us revere, and, 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 and so on. So that, that the shift of that, so as I relate to that, I realize these things are, are shifting, and the best that I can do is try to, to keep it in somewhat of a balance. So, and, and don't be afraid to explore and to uh, experiment to some extent. You know, well, what is the heart element? What is the water element? And so on. And as you as you as you as you breathe and things. And so, um, it's really left to a certain investigation and creativity for the individual. Sure. Sure, all of, all of those are you know, our sensations, and so instead of mind, we can start to think of them as, as elements. And I really like, because remember, the, the idea is, the, is dispassion, is the setting in of that, because that, generally the, it's the passion, isn't it? The attraction, aversion, you know, I want, I don't want, I like, I dislike, you know, and, you know, pull it to me, push it away from me. And, 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 and that's really like the, 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 the bag of beans, in a nice way, saying, you know, this bag of skin with all these things. Uh, and it came up in a conversation that, that, well, you know, they're not, it's something we're not used to looking at, but if we lay them out, it can be objective. Um, we find it unattractive, but it's just because we're not used to seeing it. And they're just, they are what they are. They're really not attractive or unattractive. It's you and I. It's the I that puts the attachment to, that's attractive, that's not attractive. I like that, I don't like that. There's a phrase within that. Um, that there's there's two suttas that that relate very closely to that. The uh, mindful, the four foundations of mindfulness, which Joseph has been quoting, and then it's it, in a way its partner is the the discourse on mindfulness of breathing, and the, the this uh, the what's called the Anapanasati Sutta, and the Buddha says in that how does 
how does mindfulness of breathing develop the four foundations of mindfulness? And how do the four foundations of mindfulness develop the four factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of enlightenment? So there's this little phrase that I find really intriguing and quite beautiful within that. And the Buddha's talking about investigating the breath. And he says, this is one body amongst bodies, the body of the breath. And so he, he refers to that. He uses it as a, as a, it's a kaya, it's a, it's a form. So that, because uh, you might be thinking, well, you know, the, the, the breath is, is air, it's gas, so it hasn't really got a shape. But uh, it's still, it's, it's a material. So if you put gas under pressure, it's still, it only takes up a certain amount of space. So that, and also just within our, within our lungs and taking it into the body. And so that, that simple phrase, this is one body amongst bodies. This is one kind of um, package amongst the packages of uh, d d different bags of beans that we have. <laughs> and then, uh, as Joseph was saying, like the quality of, of uh, the, the air element represents vibration. So that, that that kind of, if you, with the breath, just not just the, the long term in and out, but also the, uh, the, the subtle vibratory quality that you can feel with the breath or the energy of the breath. And then uh, the, the water element is cohesion, how things hold together. So in a way that the, the, the flow of a breath you know, forming in a particular pattern as it passes through the nose or the mouth. And then fire element, the heat, the, just the, the temperature of it. And uh, you know, Lumpur Chah would often point out how you know, can you notice the difference in temperature between the in-breath and the out-breath? That when you, you breathe in, it's cool. When you breathe out, it's slightly warmer if you're, if you're sensing the breath at the, the tip of the nose. So, like Joseph was saying, you, you can experiment and play with these and just ask yourself that question. What is the solidity? What is the shapedness in the breath? What's, what's the realm of form in the breath? How is that? There's no sort of one right answer or a fixed thing, but these are ways of, of exploring. But um, the, the, the whole point of it, as he was saying, is to develop that quality of, of uh, seeing this, this body and, and its different attributes as part of a, a, a natural system. And that we're it, to, de, to depersonalize it to, in a way to puncture the illusion of individual separate identity. Oh. And that was really useful actually. Mm -hmm. I started working things with my mother and my brothers and mm. my father. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Maybe there's yeah. a question there. Oh, maybe there. <coughs> Go ahead, Tony, then this gentleman, yeah. Push up, you should see red. Not that kind of red. <laughs> it's on. I've been thinking, as one does on a retreat, about the reflection that Catherine reminded us of um, last weekend about the days and nights are rapidly passing. How am I spending my time? And it implies there's a good way of spending your time and a bad way of spending your time. And I've got mildly obsessed as I walked around and sat on this retreat about 
what would be the definition of time well spent? A day well spent, an hour well spent, a lifetime well spent. I mean, it's both intrinsically obvious on one level that you would keep within the precepts, you would do things which were conducive to liberation. But the devil's in the detail, really, that is walking up and down a path, time well spent. Does it depend how you're doing it? And if you take it into more refined areas than that, I mean, anything could be a waste of time, or could you say that anything done mindfully is never a waste of time? Oh, Tony. An easy one. Oh, Tony. <laughs> um, I think it's an, an excellent question and, and one that we uh, probably all consider. But, but ultimately, it comes down to me, or it comes down to each of us as an individual in this, so why are you here? Uh, I'm here you know, for the reasons that I have, and, and that I know this is a good thing. I, I feel that I've connected to it. So this is time well spent to me, and I'm clear about that. So I don't have doubt about that. Um, and, and so therefore, the the individuality of time well spent is just that. It's it's more individual. So why each of us is here maybe come for uh, a different different reasons, and actually find ourselves being here and uh, being perhaps disappointed that things that one expected did not happen, but that one didn't expect did happen, and it all kind of panned out in, in the end. But I, I, I would caution about over, over an, uh, an over-analysis of it, if you will, and the simplicity, just like I was saying, like, at the end of the day, how well have I spent this day? And... Uh, uh, reflecting on things that you did that maybe you weren't so happy or proud of, things that maybe you were proud of, and things that just seemed to not have. I you know, weeded the garden or did something that I felt good about because uh, w whatever. And so the simplicity of just that daily kind of um, uh, reflecting and letting that day go for, for what it is. And I guess the other part, too, is, like le is learning what have I learned Today, perhaps of how, because the present is always informing me of what I've done in the past, and so if I'm not liking or feeling not particularly good about what I'm experiencing in the present, then karma is like what the karma that we're creating is the karma that we experience is the karma that's going to form what we're going to experience, and that's all right, really, in the in the, what is apparent in the in the now. And so my tendency is always to, to simplify, to keep it as, as simple as possible, and, but ask those questions of, of oneself. And that's, I think I would leave it, leave it there. There's a gentleman down here. This is to, uh, <clears throat> I was reminded of uh, John Lennon misquoting Samuel Johnson. He said, uh, uh, in one of his songs, uh, Life is what happens while life is something that happens while we're making other plans, and that uh, yeah, primarily uh, time is well spent if we're if we're there for our own life, rather than dwelling <coughs> in ideas of the past and the future, but paying attention to the present. So that's the key piece. So mindfulness, you know, paying attention to the present is a, is the the key element, 
And uh, in particular, the, the, um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Firstly, the, the Buddha emphasized the import, importance of the development of wisdom. And there's this, ex, there's this great, extraordinary um, example he gives of how it, in a, he talks about a previous life of his when he was a very rich Brahmin and he made this spectacularly valuable offering. Um, he was a Brahmin of Vilama. It's called the Vilama Sutta. And it's 84,000 pots of silver filled with gold, 84,000 gold pots filled with silver, you know, 10,000 know, 10, elephants, 10,000 horses, 10,000 cattle. This enormously wealthy offering. He said that the, the merit that came from that was extraordinary and abundant and, and huge. But uh, that was not as uh, meritorious as keeping the five precepts. And that, uh, says, uh, and even more meritorious than keeping the, the five precepts for a lifetime was to, uh, to, to sustain loving-kindness in being for the time that it takes to milk a cow. About 20 minutes, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so that, uh, that there's this uh, huge offering that uh, worth billions and billions of, of pounds that is outweighed by keeping the precepts, which in turn is outweighed by practicing metta for 20 minutes. And then, it's a very long sutta, and it goes through one detail after another after another. And the final one is where he says, um, but even more meritorious than that is sustaining the awareness of anicca for a finger snap. That to, to really see impermanence, to develop that true quality of wisdom, to see, oh, everything is changing. <laughs> to truly see that, that is uh, more well spent. <laughs> that time is more well spent than in, in any other way. So, so that might seem a bit demanding, um, and but it's also again referring to the Satipatthana Sutta, where the, the Buddha says uh, to to know the um, the different mind states and the different aspects of of the body and the, and feelings and and moods and so forth. He says even to the extent just to know there is this, and particularly in the 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 section the, the third section of the. Um, foundations of mindfulness, where he's talking about moods. Where he says, knowing the angry mind is angry, the mind free from anger is free from anger. Knowing the distracted mind is distracted, the mind free from distraction is free from distraction. Knowing the agitated mind is agitated, the mind free from agitation is free from agitation. So even just to know, this mind is really agitated today, or this is anger. <laughs> just that, says, even to the extent of just knowing, there is this. Right there is the establishment of mindfulness. So even that, just that, that quality of... doesn't mean the mind has to be free of those moods, but just to know this is an angry feeling, or this is a distracted feeling. Right there, that's time well spent. And maybe the last thing to say on this is that even if you've been totally caught up, <laughs> swept away by some, some mood or some activity, and then you plunk yourself down uh, after several hours, and you, and you realize, where the hell was I? <laughs> I've been completely lost for the last five hours. Even at that moment, there's a recognition, ah, it's possible for me to be completely lost for five hours. Look at that. And right there, there's mindfulness is being established. So that, even though the five hours might have been wasted, <laughs> you can turn it to good use. You can, you can put that to, your, to, to good use by recognizing, oh, Look at that. I need to be more attentive because if I, if I don't pay close attention, I can get swept up and carried away for hours on end. So that even those 
places where we lose it inform us to, to be uh, more attentive. Can we um, pass the mic down here, then come back to Catherine? There's some gentleman down here. Um, one very simple way the mic is moving, the analogy that came to mind and kind of fits in with what Ajahn was saying. Think about a, the darkest place you can imagine. So they, people do this caving. They go down to these places where no light uh, ever manifests. And, and we don't know how many millions of years, perhaps, that darkness has been there. But what, what brings light to the darkness is just one spark or one match lit or one torch. It doesn't matter. So how long, ever long that darkness has been there, in an instant, the darkness can be dispelled. And I think it's a wonderful al- analogy and fits with our It's like one moment of mindfulness if five hours were wasted, but we're not going to judge it. Or well, I, dev- I, I, I make the effort to not base my practice that I all the failures and that one moment allows me to begin again. And, and there's such a refreshness, you know, a refreshing quality to that to start, to be able to start over. Joseph, this morning I heard you saying that in the moment of death there are choices to make. And a little later I heard you saying, you brought the simile of a man falling out of a boat and go with the flow. Mm. Can you explain this a bit more Mm. because this sounds different? Well, there's always going to be certain contradictions in that. So one is is the falling, of course, that, that I can't do anything about that if gravity is going to take the body down and so I have to kind of to to me to surrender to the fall or like the the, the ragdoll analogy in the white water but say if it's death in this case we're talking about death but then <clears throat> the development of uh, being able to be clear and trust in that moment that's the next level of that trusting in that then the, the, the fall is here. What's next? To be, be willing to go with that next thing. And so like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, like the lights arising, the description I gave that, uh, and I don't know because I ha- can't sit here and say that I've died and then come back and see choices. But I believe there's either a choice or there's a certain, to, to, to maybe unpack that a little bit, where there's a certain choice that arises where we can go more towards light or darkness and that's certainly uh, expounded on in the uh, in the uh, I forget what the it's it's the Tibetan book of living to living, and living and dying but it's even more the description from uh, Sogyal Rinpoche which I really liked is the is the great liberation through hearing the bardos so the bardos or the, the intervals, and certainly in these tra- from the Tibetan tradition, are the intervals or various uh, places that that will manifest that one will experience. And so the Tibetan tradition is to read out to somebody who has died, and so uh, with the idea of helping give them uh, certain choices. So I think I'm basing it on that a little bit more, but I don't really know. But I believe that we do. The, the more clarity, what I believe is the more clarity I can develop, that I think more I'll be able to direct, like to steer my, my ship to some extent, you know, d- depending. So I hope that adds a little bit of, of clarity to, Thank you. to that. I can bring it back down this way. For <clears throat>
Um, the over the weekend, uh, the context of the days and nights are relentlessly passing, has to do with the context of remorse, um, regret, and resolution. And um, I can see how you could take it another way and then use it as an opportunity. You know, how good am I? Um, you know, how how is all this working for me? Why this is important, I think, is because um, I've worked with elders uh, for four years, and um, two things came from that is that um, you never know, of course, nobody knows when, but I saw a lot of elders trapped in mind states, particularly uh, we had hospice come into our home. And... Um, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that in today's world, nobody really dies in a lot of pain because of medications and such. But psychically, I saw a lot of extra suffering. And someone, uh, uh, you know, they're holding on to this body. I mean, woulda, coulda, shoulda. You know? And a lot of these elders... Uh, didn't have the tools that we are learning and cultivating in their toolbox. So it's kind of this uh, sense of urgency to make use of your practice and apply it in your life. Um, so that, again, you could go quickly, you could take a long time, but the idea behind it is that, you know, you can't really, you know, what you could have said, would have done, it's not this kind of beat yourself up, but I would think the practice informs your daily life. And you see there might have been an opportunity to have a conversation or sincerely tell someone, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness. These little moments in life we don't always pay attention to. And um, I can clearly say at this point in my life that, um, that I don't have a lot of regret. It's not that I've had an easy life, but slowly and surely over the years, I have recognized without knowing a lot of scholarly stuff that I needed to clean up my act. Not that I was doing anything really horrible, but before my mother died, I'm glad that I took it upon myself to, to understand her and other things so that when she was dying, I didn't have regret about our relationship. And in fact, just to carry this further, my mother had pancreatic cancer and um, she made the decision to uh, undergo uh, additional treatment, which actually made her last few months uh, pretty miserable. But that was her choice. She didn't ask me her, my opinion. I didn't offer it to her. Um, but what I could be is be present with her because, you know, we talk about there's resources out there. Uh, if you're worried that your family's not going to um, abide by your wishes, well, perhaps you need to start having those conversations. If you're leaving it all up to chance, uh, why don't, haven't you written that well? There's practical things. 
And if you don't want to be over-medicated, you can state these things. People say, I don't want, I want to go out clear. Well, then you need to begin having these conversations with your family. And hopefully they will support you, but at the same time, sometimes families don't. And they forget it's your death, not theirs. So it gets really pretty complicated. So do what you can. Um, I will say that my stepfather, um, my mother wanted to die at home, and my stepfather couldn't bear it. And I was upset with that. But, you know, that's his dynamic with her, and I wasn't going to make him wrong or bad. So he has to live, he had to live with that. And I remember the last time, when the closer to her death, um, I came into the room and she was all over the map. She was really anxious and frightened. And the look on my, my, you know, my stepfather's face was like, please do something. Well, I did the only thing I could at the time is went over to her and I learned in my training and being with dying uh, to rub the crown chakra and try to calm her. And I said to her, there's nothing more that can be done, Mom. And it's like somebody, she's waiting for somebody to tell her that. And as soon as I said that, she began to calm down. So it's like, it's not something I rehearsed. It's being present and in, embracing the full catastrophe and just doing what you intuitively sense is what's needed. So, you know, again, keep that in context is that, you know, we have an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity to clean up our acts. And I mean that very kindly, you know, think about it. Think about how you want your support of your family and friends. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so wonderful we can do this. Thank you. That's one of my favorite quotes as well. Except I tweaked it just by one word. Uh, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How am I spending my thoughts? So I really study the quality of my thinking. More of a comment than a question. You're welcome. Comments are most welcome. Is there a particular way we can conduct ourselves in this life? to be reasonably certain that we'll be born in our next life as a, hu as a human being, which is, what, which, I, which is what I would like. How about, how about the turtle analogy? Huh? <laughs> Where does Michael, what happened to me? Did it get past, oh, it's on the other side? Oh. Well, uh, at, the, at the risk of quoting more passages from the Majjhima Nikaya, there is a, uh, a sutta called Reappearance Through Aspiration, uh, sutta number 120 of the Majjhima. And the Buddha spells out, if you want to be reborn in a particular realm, this is how you do it. Uh, but he does put the, um, the rider in there, this is for the virtuous, it's not for the unvirtuous. 
Like, so, you know, in other words, you have to have the cash in the bank in order to pay for the ticket. <laughs> so that, um, but uh, seriously, it's uh, the Buddha points out how, uh, as the the dying process is is underway, by setting the intention that that uh, uh, wish to be reborn in a particular realm, if there is during this lifetime you have, say, developed the appropriate qualities, uh, that, uh, the qualities of goodness and wholesomeness, and then at the end of that of the life, setting that intention. I, I w if I'm going to be reborn, I wish to be reborn in the human realm. I don't want to go to a heavenly realm. I don't want to go to any uh, any other destination. But uh, I wish to be reborn in the human realm. And uh, if you, it's, it's quite clearly laid out in that discourse, the Buddha says this is how it works. If you if you really want to set the mind on that, then that sets the the direction. Uh, of course, there's always the uncertainty principle <laughs> in there as well. But that's that's how to put the odds in your favor. It's also interesting how in the uh, Buddhist cosmology, the cosmology of the, the six realms, that uh, the, the human realm, the, the um, manusa loka, that what, what defines us as human beings is not having a human body, but living by the five precepts. That's what, because you can have a human body, but not actually be a human. <laughs> so that you are, uh, uh, there are sort of two different... Um, Categorizations, and so that uh, to to truly be a member of the 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 human realm, what defines us as human is the quality of of virtue, living in a a way that um, is uh, is harmless, is honest, is respectful, uh, and um, is say in accord with with uh, with Dhamma. One hundred and twenty reappearance through aspiration. Yes. That was one of the texts we yeah. received. Yeah. 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 I was just reflecting on the things that what I felt that you recognize certain things like when I was walking out of this door, yes, I would like to die here because it's Amravati and then I really like this place. And sort of uh, queuing up for the last the meal, then I thought if this is the last meal, I'd be disappointed because I would like to have rice and curry. <laughs> <It's sensible. laughs> then moving on, I mean like going to the tea. Um, I can't have peppermint in Sri Lanka, so I like to, uh, it's a pleasant experience to have that. Though I'm recognizing the thought afterwards you said to let go, and I'm just finding it difficult simply because that moving on with the work and reflecting on item by item or the action by action, how do I recognize sort of that letting go part of it? Do you mean uh because uh, just what you've been describing, in a way, is that that's the largest part of that kind of practice. Just seeing the mind going, oh, here I am in the queue and thinking, if this is my last meal, I'd much rather it was curry. <laughs> right there, you've got it. Like, look at that. The mind is, is getting, heading towards being reborn in Sri Lanka. Yeah. <laughs> in a kitchen. You know. 
you could be you could be closer to the curry than you really want to be. <laughs> and the, <clears throat> but right there, that's that's mostly. Look at that. Yeah, that I want to be reborn for a curry. Okay, so duly noted. Seeing where the mind is drawn. This li little book that um, Joseph was was picking up. This is. Um, this is called The Mountains of Tibet by Mordecai Gerstein. Very Buddhist name. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, uh, this is, the, the, in my, humble, my not very humble opinion, this is the best explanation about the process of rebirth for children and for adults that you can find in print. It's, a, a very, it's, it's printed for children. And... Um, uh, it, uh, it's a, a shame that the pictures are a little bit small, but um, it, uh, it points out how we are drawn towards things that are particularly familiar. <coughs> so um, maybe I can just quickly go through it. Can, I'd read, can I read the introduction? Then you could read the story. Okay. Because I think the introduction kind of sets it up in a, in a lovely way. <clears throat> and it's by Sogyal Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan Rinpoche. Yes. For more than a thousand years, one of the world's oldest traditions of wisdom flourished in seclusion behind the mountains of Tibet, a tradition which produced countless saints and scholars. It also shines through the faces of ordinary men and women in the contentment, joy, and gentleness for which Tibetan people are famous. The heart of the wisdom of Tibet lies in its revolutionary understanding of the mind. The Tibetan teachings on the mind, and especially on death, first gripped the attention of the West in 1927 with the translation of the so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead. The ancient Buddhist teachings of Tibet tell us that life and death are parts of one whole, and that to understand death is to hold the key to understanding life. The teachings tell us, too, that both life and death are within the mind. Just as as above the clouds there in the I'm sorry, just abo as above the clouds there is a limitless expanse of clear blue sky. So beyond the confusion of the ordinary thinking mind, there lies the essential original nature of our mind. It is within the cloud-like ordinary mind that again and again we undergo change and death. <clears throat> but the sky-like nature of mind is untouched by change and is deathless. It is the background to the whole of life and death, just like the sky which folds the whole universe in its embrace. Its pure and pristine awareness is the most subtle level of consciousness, which continues even through enlightenment and provides the basis for rebirth. In a very real way, we choose our future right now, in this life, by how we act, how we speak, and how we think, because this is how we create karma. Karma is simply the force latent in our actions, words, and thoughts, and the inevitable results these bring. When we die, the kind of karma we, ha we have accumulated as thoughts, emotions, habitual reactions, tendencies, and inclinations of all kinds will direct and shape how and where our next life will be. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, which describes the journey of consciousness after death, forms part of a huge cycle of teachings and meditation practices, and it is designed for a practitioner who is familiar with the whole tradition, as is shown by its true title, The Great Liberation Through Hearing the Bardos. Bardos are intervals, transitions, or different realities of mind, 
occurring throughout life and death, in which we are given a special opportunity for liberation. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is read to a person as they are dying and after they have died, to guide them through the bardo of Dharmata, a special state of death in which the radiant energy of the essential nature of mind displays itself as an explosion of color, sound, and light, and the bardo of becoming, a dreamlike experience which lasts from when we die until we take rebirth. The wonder and greatness of the Tibetan tradition is that it is a living one, one that can be transmitted to and absorbed and embodied by people raised in the modern world. The mountains of Tibet, Mordaiki Gerstein, shows us how beautifully and imaginatively the Tibetan teachings on living and dying can be presented to children. These teachings are relevant to us all, all of us, and perhaps there has never been a time when we have needed them more. Yeah. I mean, the absence of having a uh, a kind of <laughs> a screen to be able to display this. Those who'd like to see the pictures more clearly can scoot closer if you like. It starts off first page here, a little boy with a kite, and it says, "In a tiny village in a valley high in the mountains of Tibet, a little boy was born. He loved to fly kites." On clear nights, he liked to look up at the Milky Way and the stars. There are other worlds up there, he said to himself. Someday, I'm going to visit them. He grew up to be a woodcutter. As he gathered his wood, he looked out beyond the far mountains. There are other countries out there, he said to himself. Cities and oceans and people of other races. Someday, I'll go and see them. with his axe and the mountains in the background. But he was always busy with his work and his wife and children. He lived to be very old, and he never left his valley. So here he is with the wife and children, and here he is very old. It's a story that moves along quite quickly. <laughs> so here he is, the old gaffer under the tree. Yeah. Kind of enjoying the sunset. Yes. No, 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 no. Okay. Then he died. He found himself in a place that was both very dark and very bright. He heard a voice speaking to him. The voice said, You now have a choice. You may become part of the endless universe some call heaven, or you may live another life. I want to live another life, said the woodcutter. The one I just lived has faded from my mind like a dream. All I can remember is that I wanted to see more of the world. Look around you, said the voice. Ooh. This is Joseph in his woom, 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 woom. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> Whoa! So he's sort of 
in the face of the entire cosmos. The woodcutter looked out and saw all the worlds of the universe. They blazed and spun like fireworks on New Year's Eve. There are hundreds of millions of worlds, said the voice. They are called galaxies. Each one is different and each one is beautiful. And you may choose any one you like to live in. Then the woodcutter heard the galaxies singing to him. Choose me, choose me, sang each one. <laughs> the woodcutter was frightened. His head began to spin. How can I choose, he cried. Choose from your heart, the voice replied. There was a pinwheel-shaped galaxy that looked like a great splash of milk. I like that one, said the woodcutter. That galaxy has hundreds of millions of stars, said the voice. They come in all shapes and sizes, and any one you like may be your own. All the stars of the galaxy sparkled for the woodcutter. They flashed like fireflies in the woods on a summer night. But one star caught his eye. Its light was warm and golden. I'll take that one said the woodcutter. That star, said the voice, has nine perfect planets revolving around it. Which one would you like to be your home? The woodcutter saw the nine planets, each in its place. One was huge with swirling clouds. Another was red. One had sparkling rings around it and many moons. One looked like a blue-green marble the woodcutter had had long ago as a boy. I like that one, <laughs> said the woodcutter. Somehow, it looks like home. <laughs> On that planet, said the voice, live hundreds of thousands of different and wonderful creatures. You may live your life as anyone you like. Which will you be? The woodcutter looked again, and there were all the different creatures parading past him. Some swam, some danced, and some flew. So... There's whales and octopuses and moose, mooses, mice, mices, mices, <laughs> the plural of moose, monkey. uh, monkeys, baboons, lions, penguins, Rhino. a human even, and a goose, and a dog, and a giraffe. Come be like me, each one called. See how much fun you'll have. See how beautiful you'll be. There were whales and goldfish, lions and pussycats. There were snakes and giraffes. There were butterflies and there were people. The woodcutter almost decided to be a seagull gliding on the sea breeze. Then he saw a child watching the seagull and laughing. The child was flying a kite. I want to be a person, said the woodcutter. There are thousands of kinds of people in this world, said the voice, each with different dances and delicious dishes. <laughs> and you may join any kind you like. The woodcutter looked and saw all the peoples of the world dancing around him. They looked like flowers. And so it's all the people dancing in their multi, multifarious forms. There were red, white, and golden people. There were black and brown and pink people. Some wore feathers and some wore silks. Some wore plaids and some stripes. They all danced their dances and called to him in all their different languages. Just taste this, they called. <laughs> Holding out their most tempting dishes. Ooh. This is the hardest choice, said the woodcutter. <laughs> Finally, the music of the golden people touched his heart. 
I will join them, he said. Now, said the voice, where on your planet would you like to be born? It may be anywhere you like. Then the woodcutter saw all the countries that he'd never seen during his life. He saw forests and plains, he saw deserts and green islands, he saw great cities and lush jungles. But there was one green valley high in the craggy mountains that seemed to wink at him and whisper old familiar stories. Here are the different cities and places of the world. New York City, San Francisco, Brooklyn Bridge, looks like Rome, Beijing, Moscow, <laughs> Sumatra. <laughs> that looks like a perfect place to be born, said the woodcutter. There are dozens of young mothers and fathers in that valley, said the voice. Whichever you like best will be yours. The woodcutter felt the love of all the young mothers and fathers of the valley flow up to him. Or reaching out their hands. <laughs> they all smiled and held out their arms to him, calling, Come to us, come be ours. He saw a man whose smile made his heart sing. He saw a woman whose smile made him feel safe and warm. I want them for my parents, he said. Last, said the voice, you may choose whether to be a boy or a girl. <laughs> I seem to remember that I was a boy, said the woodcutter. This time, I'd like to see what being a girl is like. And so, in a tiny village, in a valley, high in the mountains of Tibet, <laughs> a little girl was born. She loved to fly kites. So. And now it's time for tea. So, now it's time for tea.